Acts chapter number 8. If you don't have a Bible, there's probably a black-covered uh, Bible there in front of you, in the seat in front of you. Uh, feel free to take that, follow us along. If you don't have a Bible, then you keep it. You know, keep it as our gift to you that you can have. Uh, I always think it's great if you can have a copy of the Word of God, but you can have that if you need it. But we'll be in Acts chapter uh, number 8. And as we're turning there again, I, I hope you have a, a, good, a good week, and I hope you're having a good Lord's Day. And as we've been singing about, and we're here today to worship the Lord. Sunday school lesson kind of bled into the songs today and everything. It's the idea of let's come, let us worship the Lord. Now, we're here today, but that don't mean we're going to worship the Lord. But we're here today, we've got to have the attitude that, God, we're here to worship you. We're here to worship you in spirit and in truth, and God, for us to speak to us, right? That's what we want God to do. We want him to bless us and be with us. And... Uh, we're going to look at Acts chapter number 8 here in just a moment, and uh, we're going to start reading in verse 1 in a minute, but just to give you a little bit of an idea where we're at, you know, I said in the very first week when we started this series, looking in the book of Acts, and I know it's been several weeks since we started, the idea of my plan in teaching was uh, to show you the movement of the Holy Spirit and the spread of the gospel where I left Jerusalem, and it goes out to the ends and the uttermost parts of the earth. And we know that that happens, as we've been talking about each week, Acts chapter 1, verse 8. We know that the gospel gets to the uttermost parts of the earth, because you and I have, have the Word of God right here. You have it on your device. But you know what? We know that that happened, and it's supposed to continue to happen about the Word of God getting out. And as Acts chapter 1, verse 8 says, Jesus told him what? But ye shall receive power. After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth or to the ends of the earth. And for the first several weeks, we've been talking about how the gospel came to Jerusalem, how it came there and the Lord started uh, the early stages of the church and how people and thousands of people were saved. It even got to the point where Luke is the author of the book of Acts and says, you know, it's almost too numerous to number. And that's a great problem, isn't it? People trusting Christ, following Christ. It's almost too numerous to number. And we're seeing up to this point, we have been looking at the idea of how it came to Jerusalem. And we ended... Uh, last week, we ended chapter number 7, and the gospel is still there, kind of hanging out still, if you would, there at Jerusalem. And today, we're going to see where the gospel leaves Jerusalem and actually starts to go out to the other parts of the earth. And during that time, honestly, some pretty disturbing things will happen. Uh, last week, as we studied in our series and, and in chapter number 7, we looked at the death of Stephen. And I tell you, I hope that message that we looked at and started as far as talking about the ministry, the life, and the death of Stephen, doesn't just something you think about for a moment and forget it. Because I tell you, the life and the death of, of Stephen is so, such a pivotal, pivotal part of the book of Acts. Because it says in chapter number 7, it says when they were going to stone Stephen for his faith, that they lay down their cloaks, or they lay down their uh, cloaks, excuse me, or their coats at a young man's feet whose name was Saul. And we look Saul the first time, the apostle Paul, before he came to Christ, who is then known as Saul, we first get him introduced. And we'll talk about him more in the weeks to come necessarily. But in our culture, and what we studied last week, um, we saw how Stephen had to give his life for Christ. But as I mentioned, I don't think most of us, if not all of us, will have to give our life for the Lord Jesus Christ. I think when you look at the life of Stephen, he shows us how we can live our lives for Christ and to live our lives in a way that are pleasing to him. And so, like I said, we see Stephen's killed, and, and he's dragged out to the outskirts of town, and he's stoned, and he becomes what we see as the first Christian martyr. And that's important, because up to that point, uh, the worst that's happened is people have been arrested, people have maybe been scourged a little bit, they've been threatened, 
but nothing has happened to this magnitude. So now with the, the stoning, the killing of Stephen, that threshold has been crossed. And that threshold is all that Saul needed to start ra uh, raging havoc on the church. And we'll see some of those things here in just a moment. And so we see because of that persecution happens, people start leaving. They start leaving Jerusalem and they start proclaiming Christ. And we see a lot of real interesting things that happen. And so because of that, let's pick up reading in verse number one of, of Acts chapter number eight. And Saul was consenting unto his death. Now let me tell you what that means real quick. That means this. Saul approved and was joyful over Stephen being killed. He's like, great, here we go. I got my opportunity. Saul was wanting to, re to wreak havoc on the church. And finally, that threshold of no longer threatening and beaten, being beaten, now we've crossed and now we're killing Christians. And so we see here in verse 1, And Saul was consenting unto his death, and at the time there was a great persecution against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. Verse 3, As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering into every house and hailing men and women, committed them to prison. Verse 4, Therefore they that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ unto them. And the people with one accord gave heed unto those things which Philip spake, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For the unclean spirits, crying with loud voice, came out of many that were possessed with them, and many taken with palsies, and that were lame were healed. And there was great joy in that city. Let's pray. Father, I just pray this morning that your name would be uplifted, that your name would be glorified. Lord, as we look in your word here and continue to see the acts of the Holy Spirit, Lord, how the gospel of Christ leaves Jerusalem. Lord, I just want to thank you so much, Lord, that the gospel did leave Jerusalem, that it made it all the way to here. But Lord, because of Jesus Christ, we can stand here today. If we know you as our Savior, Lord, that we can say that I am a child of God. And Father, I just pray in these moments that we're together, that you would give clarity, Lord, that you would give uh, conviction where it's needed, guidance where it's needed, even peace, Lord, where we need some peace. Father, I pray you might settle my heart, Lord, uh, that I may say exactly what you have me to say. Lord, I pray there would be no sin between me and you. Lord, that this might be a vessel. Lord, make me usable. Lord, if there's someone here today that does not know Jesus Christ as their personal Savior, may they put down religion and pick up a relationship with Jesus Christ. For that one, Lord, that's needing to be encouraged to keep on, Lord, I pray you would just give them that encouragement. And Lord, for the one that may be thinking about waning and, and going away, maybe they're struggling with something, Lord, I pray today that the peace of God that passes all understanding shall keep their hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Thank you so much for that beautiful name in whose name we pray, amen. So as we said here, you see how Stephen has died and and Paul starts to wreak havoc on the church, so people start leaving. If you remember last week, we looked at the uh, seven deacons that were listed, and we saw Stephen was one, and then we see Philip and other ones. In fact, we're going to talk about Philip here in just a little bit. But it says that the gospel kept staying there. It kept staying there and staying there, and they weren't necessarily leaving. And by the way, when you got a good thing going, it's really hard to leave the party sometimes, right? You don't want to be the first one to leave when everything's going great. And so God had to bring and allow the death of Stephen who was a willing sacrifice, and I love how Stephen says, I look up and I see 
Jesus standing at the right hand of God. I love how even in his death, Stephen can look down, look down and say, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge, the very ones that are taking his life. He's using the same words that Christ gave when he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. So we see finally that the, the gospel is uh, leaving Jerusalem, and they're going to Samaria, going to Judea, and, and now we know there's Christians in Samaria, and when, and when the word reaches back to the apostles in Jerusalem that there's a new work, there's people being saved in Samaria, that, the, that Peter and John, as we'll see in a moment, decide to go see what was going on. And by the way, don't let that just roll off your, your mind as far as thinking of the gospel being taken by the Jews to Samaria, because there's something important you need to know. The Jews hated the Samaritans. The Jews were not, excuse me, the Samaritans were not Jews. They weren't Gentiles. They were mixed. They were both. They were part Gentile and part Jews. So they were looked at outcasts. In fact, one part of Scripture says a lot of times they looked at the Samaritans as dogs, not even having souls. And if you see here now the gospel, and it's amazing when the gospel dominates your heart, all the prejudice and the walls just fall right down. But when the gospel is not the center of your life, your opinions are what matters the most. And we see how people are coming to Christ, and Philip goes, and others go, and they start sharing Christ in Judea and in Samaria to the point, like I said, that Peter and John want to go check it out. And they're not going to check it out to verify if it's truly happening. They just want to say, hey, is this the same gospel? Are these people truly uh, having their lives transformed? And has the promise of Jesus begun to be fulfilled where Jesus said in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, is Acts 1-8 really the promise? Is it starting to be fulfilled and happened? And we see in verse 14 there in Acts, it says, Now when the apostles which were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent unto them Peter and John. So they go and they're excited. And I love to see the report they give down in verse number 25. And it says, And they, when they have testified and preached the word of the Lord, returned to Jerusalem and preached the gospel in many villages of the Samaritans. Now to give you an idea, the actual city of Samaria was about 30 miles north of Jerusalem. Now, 30 miles don't seem like a whole lot to you, probably does it. Most of y'all, it's like, I'd drive that one way to go to work or do something like that. It took a long time on foot. It took a long time if you're riding a donkey, riding a camel, something like that. And so it took a while for them to go, and it says after they went on their way back, that 30-mile trek back, instead of going the direct route back, uh, Peter and John says, we're going to stop in these villages, and we're going to start telling these Samaritans all throughout Samaria about the wonderful work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Can I tell you, you can't give the gospel to the wrong person. There's not a person walking on the face of this earth that does not need the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, whether that's for salvation or whether it needs for encouragement in how they live our lives. And may we never become a people, may we never ever become a people where we feel like we're the judge of who needs Jesus. May we give him freely, may we give him often, may we give him liberally, and may we show the same grace and love of Christ to others. If you're like me, like he overflows to me every single day. May we give that to them. And Peter and John are seeing this and they're excited. And so we see that there's Samaritans and villages who come to believe in Christ. And so the gospel is spreading. So Acts 1-8 is starting to really happen. And, and even in chapters number 8, 9, and 10, and we'll look at chapters 9 and 10 in the weeks to come, is that you get three pretty significant conversions during those chapters. We're going to see one today with Philip. In chapter number 8, and you're going to see the conversion of Saul to Paul in chapter number 9. And then chapter number 10, we're going to see another one where another outsider, a Roman, puts their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we're going to see some pretty significant things there to the spreading of the gospel. And so when we see this, that leads us to verse number 26. 
So if you would, in, cha in Acts chapter number 8, if you would, let's look down here in verse number 26 in just a moment. And the title of my message here is this, and hopefully we've got some things on the screen to help out, and I, a lot of times I look at them to help myself out, is this, that, is that someone is waiting. And that's the title of my message today, that someone is waiting, or there is someone waiting to hear about Jesus. Can I tell you, if you're here today and you know the Lord is your Savior, there was a day that you were waiting. There was a day that you were waiting for somebody to bring Jesus to you. If you're here and you're saved, do you remember who that person was? Do you remember? You said, well, Phil, the accident didn't lead me to Christ. I kind of accepted Christ on my own. But you know what I mean? Maybe it was a Sunday school teacher. Maybe it was a mother. Maybe it was a father. Maybe it was a grandparent. But someone brought Jesus to you. And we're looking at that someone is waiting. And I want us to see some things here about Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. Probably a fairly familiar story. But I think something that we definitely can apply to our lives. And the idea that someone is waiting and first off, number one, I want us to see this. God's ways are not our ways. You say, Phil, you're preaching to the choir right now, buddy. But I want us to see in understanding this that God's ways are not our ways. You ever think about this? Your plans and God's plans ever differ? You're like, about every day. But God's way of doing things, God's plans of doing things, they differ. And let's look in uh, verse number 26. Now remember, Philip has been preaching in Samaria and hundreds if not thousands of people are coming to Christ. So they have this big revival going on in Samaria, and then you come to verse number 26. And the angel of the Lord spake unto Philip, saying, Arise, and go toward the south, and to the way that goeth down from Jerusalem unto Gaza, which is desert. Now, I'm reading this, thinking about God's ways are not our ways. It says in verse 26, Then the angel of the Lord comes and tells him to go to the desert. Now, remember, Philip's there, he's preaching. Every time he opens his mouth, probably, the gospel comes out. People are trusting Christ. And now the angel of the Lord says, hey, God wants you to do this. He wants you to leave where you're at right now and wants you to go to the desert. Now, does that sound like uh, you, you'd be like, question? Okay, I'm in a huge revival here. Is the Lord sure he wants me to leave here to go to the desert? I mean, that doesn't necessarily sound like the greatest place to go, does it? Now, if I told you, now, here, you're going to get to go to the desert for vacation. We get it all paid for, okay? We got it good. We got you a tent. You know, you're just going to have a good time. There's not going to be water. There's not going to be anything around you. But we just, all expenses paid trip to the desert. Have a good one. You're like, uh, Phil, you need to pray about that in a little bit more. Because I don't have to pray about that. And he tells them, hey, you need to go to the desert. Go to this desert. And by the way, I don't know if you noticed this or not. And here's the problem with familiarity of Scripture. We know the story, but we miss a whole lot in it. Do you notice something in verse 26? He doesn't tell him who's going to be there. He doesn't say, hey, there's going to be a eunuch there. He doesn't say, hey, there's going to be a group of people that need Jesus there. He doesn't say there's going to be one person there. He doesn't say there's going to be a city there. He just told him to go. Man, that sounds a whole lot like Abraham, right? Abraham, get up, go. Where? To a land I'll show you. Now, once again, I love Abraham. The faith of Abraham to me is one of the great things of Scripture. I see Abraham's ginormous faith, and I see Abraham sometimes when he's got my like faith. And, um, and imagine Abraham going home and saying, hey, hey, Sarah, pack up, pack up the boxes, baby. We're moving. Where are we going? Lord's going to show us. Now, ladies, how many of y'all would love to hear that plan? Hey, we're going. Where's God? Where, where are we going? God told us to go. Okay, baby, I trust you. Where are we going? God's going to show us. I tell us sometimes we discount the faith of these people we read about in Scripture sometimes. But we have to remember something. They're, the same, they're made of the same stuff we are. And a lot of times God's ways and God's plans don't seem right. He doesn't tell them who's going to be there. He just tells them to go. 
He says, down from Jerusalem unto Gaza, which is desert. Can I just throw this out here, and this is not the message? Sometimes in my spiritual walk, God wants me to go to the desert. Desert doesn't sound prosperous, does it? Sounds hot, dry, doesn't sound very fruitful, does it? Doesn't sound like a place you want to go. Why not be in the bustling city? Why not be there? Sometimes God lets us go to the desert because it's not for our glory, it's for his. And if I could just stop for a moment and tell you that you might be in a desert right now, don't kick against God when you're in the desert. If God's led you to the desert, stay there as long as he needs you to stay there. Because you might just leave a little bit before he does what he's wanting to do. I don't like the desert any better than you do. Some of us go there spiritually. Some of us go there emotionally. But can I tell you, if God, if God leads you to the desert, let it be God leading you to the desert, by the way. But if God leads you to the desert, just follow him. Just trust him. You know, the desert, a lot of times, is a lot of what we call bewilderment, confusion. But we see how he told him to go. And remember, Philip's part of this massive revival in Samaria, and people are coming to Christ. And now he's being told to go to the desert. It doesn't make sense. It'd be kind of similar in, in a boat like this of saying, and, and this is just an idea. It's like if God says, all right, Phil, you're done here at Emmanuel. I need you to go to the middle of nowhere right there, and I just need you to go. Don't need you to pastor, and I'm going to give you all the information. I just need you to pick up, move, and go. I say, God, but what, aren't you doing something great here at Emmanuel? Aren't you doing something great? I mean, God's doing some great things. But you know what? I ought to be willing to be like a Philip, to have enough trust in God that if God says, hey, I know you don't understand it, but just go. You ever had times in your life where God's asked you and led you to do something and it just did not make sense to you? But you did only to at the end see that, man, God's a lot smarter than I am. <laughs> God's a lot better at this than I am. Have you ever done what I've done sometimes? God's told me to do something, and I said, God, it doesn't add up, and because it doesn't add up, I'm not doing it. That wasn't God. Maybe it was just that bad pizza late at night that maybe had that feeling. Maybe it's something else. And so we see uh, Philip here. He's told to go. And I notice in, in the idea of God's ways are not our ways. Let's read on in verse number 27 and 28. It says, And he, being Philip, arose, and behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Candace, queen of Ethiopians, who had the charge of all her treasure and had come to Jerusalem for to worship, was returning and sitting in the chariot reading Isaiah, or Isaiah the prophet. We'll stop there. I noticed not only did the angel come to him and tell him to go to the desert, but what I love about Philip and was convicting to my life, I don't see any objection. I don't see Philip saying, kind of like me, I kind of a, I'm kind of a Gideon guy. Does that make sense? I, I'm not sure it's for, I'm a Gideon's fleece guy. Okay, God, if this is what you want me to do, I'm going to throw the, the blanket out here, and in the morning, make the blanket wet with dew, but make the ground really dry around it. Okay, God, you gave me that clarity. Thank you. Okay, God, just to make sure that this wasn't some freak accident, tomorrow I want the blanket to be dry and all the ground to be wet. If you do it, then I'll know. Aren't you glad God has a lot more patience with us than we do with other things? I, I'm a Gideon's police guy. I, I'll just be honest with you. That's a lot of times where I'm at. I want to have, now understand, it's not the person, it's Christ, but I love Philip's faith. You don't see him waiting. You don't say, well, let me make sure I can raise enough money. Let me make sure there's a good route to get there. Let me make sure I've got plans ahead. He just says, well, go, and we say what? And he arose and went. Can I tell you, sometimes in your Christian life, you ain't got to know how. You just got to rise up and go. You just got to follow God, follow God's leading in your life. And God's telling you where you're at's great, but you know what? It's time for you to get up and go. Get up and go forward in your Christian life. Get up and go. Sometimes we have to stand still 
and see the, and know God, but sometimes God says you got to get up and you got to go. When there's no objection here, he goes immediately. And I like, he gets down to the desert and just so happens, right? There's a eunuch, a caravan of people. Just so happens that he did that. You know what I think this is? I call them divine appointments. Some people call stuff luck. I understand what you mean by that. But God is either sovereign or he's not, it's not sovereign. He's in control or he's not in control. And so there's really no such thing as luck. I know what you mean when you say, I hope you get good luck. You're saying, well, I hope things turn out good for you the way you want it. But I love how in reading scripture, just so happens Philip gets down there and there's this caravan going across. Now, by the way, a lot of us in this account want to think there's this one dude riding on a camel. That's not true. When you read this account and understand he's a man of high authority, he's the treasurer of all the queen, uh, Candace, the queen of Ethiopia. I'm not seeing one dude riding a camel back from Jerusalem. I'm seeing a caravan of people. I'm seeing soldiers around. I'm seeing people around. I'm seeing someone driving whatever animal that they're leading a team of. I'm seeing a group of people that are making their way across. And it says that he's seen him and he sees what he's doing. And, and, and as I noticed this, is that he's a man of great authority. He's a man that is the treasure, if you would. And it's not just one. And he goes without any hesitation. And then next we see in verse number 29 and 30, let's read on, it says, Then the Spirit said unto Philip, Go near and join thyself to this chariot. And the next three words are very, very great. And Philip ran thither to him, and he heard him read the prophet Isaiah, and said, Understandest thou what thou readest? So part of understanding God's ways and God's plans is he responded in a great way, the right way, but also in understanding this, the Holy Spirit says, Okay, you see him? You see that caravan? He says, I want you to go down to it, but I also want you to join up to it. it. means I want you to engage them. I want you to talk to them. I want you to speak to them. And so Holy Spirit tells Philip to go. And if you noticed here, he's, what happened? Philip looks up and look at his response. It says, and Philip ran. Let me ask you a question. How do you respond to the Holy Spirit's leading in your life? You drag your feet, but you run. Now, Philip's already out there in the desert. I'm going to guess there ain't too many other people riding around. Phillips looks up, he sees this eunuch, this big caravan going, and you notice it's not the angel this time. What does it say was the Holy Spirit? Holy Spirit says, that's it, go. I don't see Philip saying, well, God, let me stop for a second. Let me pray about this 18 times. If they're still there tomorrow morning, I'm going to go down there and talk to them. It says Philip ran. A lot of times in our lives, we don't run for the leading of the Holy Spirit. We drag our feet. Why? Because we don't understand. Philip didn't know what those guys were. Obey the Holy Spirit as he leads you in your life. Can I tell you, you don't have to wait till Sunday for the Holy Spirit to lead you. Holy Spirit does a lot of things and, and leads me on other things like that. But how do you respond to the Holy Spirit's leading? I don't believe it was that. I believe he responded correctly to the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit told him to. Can I tell you something? You say, well, Phil, I, I don't really know about the Holy Spirit leading in my life Monday through Saturday. My job is to get in here on Sunday, and if the Holy Spirit leads me on Sunday, then that's great. Can I help you with something? The best way to respond to the Holy Spirit on Sunday is to respond correctly to the Holy Spirit Monday through Saturday. 
Because I found something. When I buck against the Holy Spirit Monday through Saturday, I have a hard time responding correctly to him in here. Oh, see, we think the opposite. If I say yes to God in here, if I follow God in here, it's going to make everything else better. No, no, no. Christian life is a lot more on Sunday. There's a whole lot of other days in the week that I need to leave. I tell you, the best way to respond correctly to the Holy Spirit on Sunday is respond correctly during the week. And Philip personally engaged him. He run down there. Now, if you're, now I like to be funny sometimes. But can you see the Holy Spirit saying, go down there and talk to him? I don't see Philip going, who are you talking to? I think he got Philip in the desert, so Philip didn't have to worry about, hey, are you talking to that person? Surely God will stop. I mean, I mean Peter was just here. I mean, surely he wants Peter to go. What about John? I mean, John's here. The beloved son. I mean, surely he wants John to go. No, no. He knew it was him personally that needed to to be the one to engage. A lot of times we think God's call in our life and God's leading in situations in our life. It sounds really good, but it's not for me. You ever said that to God? God, that's really good, but somebody else needs to do it. Remember that conversation with Moses and God at the burning bush? <laughs> he was basically telling God, God, that's really good, but you ain't really calling me to this. And what is God leading you to do? What is God wanting to do in your life? And Philip personally engaged him. Can I tell you there are times that we need to pray for people? Don't you agree? There's times we need to pray for people. There's also times we need to engage them. That means we open our mouth. That means we got to talk to them. And, and by the way, if there's if there's somebody in this room, and I know you're like me, you got you got loved ones that are that are not saved. You're probably praying for them, right? You praying they get saved. You got ones in your family and friends that are that are saved, but they're away from the Lord. You're probably praying that God draws them back. But God help us if all we do is pray for them and never engage them, but we're around them all the time. It's not enough just to pray. God sometimes says, you pray. But let's let our prayer life look like our faith life. Faith's got to walk sometimes. We walk by faith. Now, let's say, that's an action. Walking's an action. We walk by faith, not by sight. And so we see that sometimes we have to personally engage. I'm not saying you just don't need to pray for him. I ain't going to pray for him anymore. But you do pray. But you do engage. When's the last time you engaged that person you're praying for? Might have to back a little bit. When's the last time you prayed for that person? Maybe you backed off a little bit with that. And allow the Holy Spirit to lead. Now, by the way, Philip acted upon the Holy Spirit's leading. Don't be the Holy Spirit. You know, I've got friends and family, and I've got loved ones that are either away from God or not saved. I want to share Christ with them. I don't want to be obnoxious to them. You know what I mean? Don't hurt the cause of Christ. Just to be right. I found this out a lot in my life. It's all right to be right and to be quiet sometimes. Sometimes you got to stand up and let it be known, but sometimes it's good to be right and to be quiet so the Holy Spirit can do what we can't do. To do what we can't do for the Holy Spirit to do those things. But we are to engage those things. So number one, we see God's ways are not our ways. But number two, we see this. We see the searching soul. The searching soul. Let's look in verse number 31. So he says, he asked him in verse uh, 30, he said, do you understand what you read? And look what the eunuch says in verse 31. And he said, how can I except some man should guide me? And he desired Philip that he would come up and sit with him. Now I want to stop there for a second. This man was searching. Where did this man come from? Do you, do you remember as the, as the verse said, at the end of verse 27, it says, and he had come to Jerusalem from the, for the worship. So this man was searching he had already went to Jerusalem. He might have even heard about some of the things that have happened from Pentecost. 
He may have even heard these things. So this man was searching for something spiritually. He was searching for something that even somehow across the time got at least part, if not all, the book of Isaiah. And he's reading it and he's wanting to learn. This man is searching for something to happen. And I love what it says here. And he desired Philip. Can I tell you something? You are surrounded probably by people on your job, in your family, in this world that we live in that you bump into at Walmart. They are searching for someone that will share Christ with them either by word or by action or hopefully by both. And they're searching for them. And it says he desired Philip. He says, I want you to come up. I want you to explain because I don't understand. And you know what I see here from passages from this scripture? You ever talk to somebody and they say, well, I read the Bible. I just don't understand. It's really hard to understand that book without the Holy Spirit. It's really hard to read that Bible and make a whole lot of sense out of it without the Holy Spirit living inside of you. Which, by the way, happens after we trust Christ as our Savior. We have the indwelling Holy Spirit inside of us. That book's awful hard to read. I saw people say, I've read that Bible. i read that Bible through, frontwards and back. I've done all this. I've read the Bible. And you know what? I just don't get it. And I tell them, you're not going to get it. You're not going to get it. You're not going to understand it outside of the Holy Spirit. But also, not only that part, but also through the idea of someone that is a believer sharing with them what the Bible says, what the Bible means. And he's searching and somehow he got the book of Isaiah and somehow he was reading it looking for answers. And I said he'd been to Jerusalem and I just kind of wonder. Spiritually he's searching. But when he got to Jerusalem, what did he find? Did he find legalism? Did he find traditions? Did he find how to be a Jew? Did he find how to convert to that Judaism? How to live like a Jew? Or did he hear the gospel of Christ presented? I wonder the same thing when people walk into Emmanuel Baptist Church. What do they find? They find how to be a Christian. How to just live like a good Christian does. Did they find traditions dominate? They seek legalism. We do these things just because we feel like we have to. Or when people walk in the doors of our church, they see the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ that loves them and he gave himself for them and died for them so they could be part of the family of God and that we're all imperfect people. We've got the same goal to serve and worship a perfect God. We're all going to mess up, but we got people around us that are going to help each other as we get up because we're not going to live selfishly. We're going to live selflessly going forward in our way of pleasing God with our life. What do people see when they come? Because obviously this guy went to Jerusalem coming back, and I'm guessing he had more questions than he had answers. Can I tell you, any time that people walk through those doors, they ought to figure out pretty quickly what the main thing is here. The main thing here is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It supersedes anything. It should. It should supersede whoever's preaching, whoever's singing, whoever shake hands, order of service, color of the carpet, temperature, any of those things. we got to say, what is the main thing? I wonder, though, if this eunuch walked back saying, you know, I heard about this stuff. But you know what? I just found out how to be a good Jew. Can I tell you what the lost world does not need when they walk in here? They don't need to find out how to be a good person morally. They don't need to learn how to be a good Christian. They need to know who Jesus Christ is and have a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what they need. And the people that are saved that come in here that are hurting, that are broken, that are bitter, whatever it is, they don't need to find out what a good Christian lives like. They need to find out how to trust Christ and fall in love with him all over again and have a relationship and have the joy of the Lord. Restore unto me, what did David say? The joy 
of thy salvation. That's what they need to find. And it says what he was reading. He's reading the prophet Isaiah. And it's reading the prophet Isaiah over in chapter number 53. And I just want to share the two verses with you. It's Isaiah 53, verses 7 and verse number 8. This is what he was reading. It says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before his shearers is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who shall declare his generation? For he was cut out, he cut off out of the land of the living. For the transgression of my people was he stricken. And that's basically going down through as it talks about there, as it's reading about in verses number 32 and 33, back in chapter number 8. And, and so you see this. And you see, he even goes on to say the question that he has in verse 34. And so as he's reading Isaiah 53, which by the way, Isaiah 53 is one of the great prophecies of Jesus Christ coming. It's one of the greatest chapters, in my opinion, of about how Jesus will come and Jesus will be born, how Jesus will live and how Jesus will be crucified, and how he will die and how, be, how he will raise from the dead and how salvation will come through the Messiah. And we see that. And he says here, and he reads this, and he says in verse 34, And the eunuch answered Philip and said, I pray thee, or I beg thee, of whom speaketh the prophet this, of himself or some other man? He's saying, is this guy Isaiah, is he talking about himself? Is this going to happen about him? Or is he talking about somebody else? So we see that soul that's searching, and which leads us to our third point of this. We see the love of Christ. He's searching. That soul is searching. Who is he speaking of? Who is this one that's going to be as a lamb, dumb before his shears? It's not going to open his mouth. Who is the one that's going to be cut off from the land of the living? Who is it that he's speaking of? And I love, you see, the love of Jesus, thirdly, as it says in verse number 35. Look at this. Then Philip opened his mouth and began at the same scripture and preached unto him Jesus. I know I said a little bit, a bit ago, but it says he opened his mouth. You got to do that sometimes. Sometimes you got to open your mouth to tell people about Jesus. Believe me, I, some people say, "Well, I don't believe in lifestyle evangelism." I do. I believe you ought to live a, live a life that draws people to Christ. Don't live a life that repels people from Christ. But it's living the life and speaking the truth, and speaking the truth in love, and telling people about Christ. Actions are necessary, but so are words, and we've got to open our mouths. And by the way, it makes us wonder sometimes what comes out of our mouth. If you had to go back and listen to the words that came out of your mouth in the last week, and only you had to hear them, the things that you said out of your mouth in the last week, were they Jesus? Were they pleasing to the one you call Savior? Or if you're like me, man, I like to hit the delete button and erase button on some of the things. We're going to open our mouths. We're going to talk about things that affect us, that bother us, that, that we love, that we're passionate about. And Philip said, basically, that's all I needed. You gave me the first couple of verses here. I'm going to open my mouth. And he says, and he started to tell him what? About how to be a good Jew? No. I'm going to tell him how he needs to observe the, the feast and, and all the dietary things. I'm going to tell him how to be a good Jew, right? No, he didn't tell him that. He said, I'm going to tell you how you need to be a good member. You join up You join up down there at Jerusalem First Baptist Church, okay? You join up down there and you start giving your tithes and all. You do, that's not what he told him. He said, he opened his mouth and told him about Jesus. And I know I said it earlier, but can I tell you, your, 
your neighbor that drives you insane, you know what they need? They need Jesus. You know your family member that makes you want to rip your hair out? You know what they need? They need to see somebody that loves Jesus in action and in word that will speak of Jesus. You know that person that's breaking your heart by the way they're living? You know what they need? Saying, hey, go smack upside the head. Well, that's true. They probably do need to go smack upside the head every now and then. But you know what? They need the love of Jesus more. And I tell you what I'm trying to learn in my life. I'm so thankful that God shows me more grace than I show other people. I'm so thankful that there's more grace in Jesus than there is sin in me. There's a whole lot of it still left in me. A whole lot. And we see that he opened his mouth and he told them about Jesus. What comes out of your mouth? He didn't teach him about the traditions. He taught him who Jesus was. How could he do that? How could Philip open his mouth and tell him about Jesus? Because Philip knew Jesus and he knew the scripture he was talking about. So he could tell them. Let me ask you a question today. Can you open your mouth and share Christ with people because you know Christ more than you did last month, last year? Can you open your mouth and share the gospel with people because you know more of this book now than you did last year? And I dare say there's many people sitting in churches that don't know one more verse of scripture now than they did when they were a kid. Don't know one more verse of scripture now than they did a year ago. Aren't any closer to Christ than what they were two years ago, three years ago, four years ago. And you know why we can't open our mouths to people without questions? Because we don't know this. And we don't know him more. I ought to know Jesus far more now than I did last year. I, don't, I, don't, I have a more of a closer relationship. I ought to know this book better now than I did a year ago. What about you? What about me? I tell you, that's convicting to me to think about that. You say, Phil, I really want to be close to God. Everybody's as close to God as they want to be. You're as close to God right now as you want to be. As far as you're willing to go. And we see how Philip, he, he knew Jesus. He knew the passage. And he says he, from the same scripture, he opened his mouth and he preached to him Jesus. Now, Isaiah 53, like I said, is a wonderful passage of scripture. I love Isaiah 53. I tell you, that's a great Old Testament principle. That, man, if you, if you haven't read Isaiah 53, it's only like 13, 14 verses. I encourage you to read about it. I wonder how many thousands of people through the centuries have come face to face with Jesus through Isaiah 53. And we see this here as we go on. Look in verse number 36 and 37. It says, And as they went on their way, they came into a certain water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? And Philip said, If thou believest with all thy heart, thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Now let me tell you something. I believe it took a little bit of time between verse 35 and verse 36. You know why? Because I don't believe he got up in the chariot and just said the name Jesus. I think between verse 35, when he started telling them about Jesus, till you get to verse number 36, where this man trusts Christ, you have the salvation of this man, where this man puts his faith in Christ as your Savior. I think it took a little bit of time. I'm pretty sure this guy had some questions. I'm pretty sure he needed some things to be answered in his life. And I think Philip, I really believe, and you don't necessarily see it in the verses here, but I believe Philip gave him the whole story of Jesus. I think as they, they continue to ride, as they continue to go through the desert, that Philip stopped and told him all about Jesus, about his virgin birth, about his life, about his miracles, about his teaching, about baptism, about ultimately the crucifixion of Christ, about his burial with the rich. And if you remember that, remember he was, he was in Joseph's tomb. 
So he's buried with the rich. And how he came forth triumphantly over death and conquered the grave to provide salvation for everyone that's lost. I think he told him all about Jesus. A little side note. You'll read every bit of what I just said in Isaiah 53. His birth. His life. His rejection. His suffering. His death. But you also see his glorious resurrection. All back in Isaiah 53. It's a beautiful, beautiful chapter of scripture. And I believe he told him the whole story of Jesus. I believe he gave it all to him and told him. Surely Philip in that time probably talked about how Jesus was baptized. And as you see in the passage here about being baptized and following Christ. And that leads to his question in verse number 36 as they go by. He says, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? Now verse 37 is pretty key here because verse 37 he gives the elements of salvation. The key elements of salvation in trusting Christ. And can I tell you these are key things that you need to know as far as understanding salvation. If you're here today without Christ, it's important to understand what it means to be saved. And he tells them, hey, what hinders me from being baptized? What hinders me from following Christ? And he says here in this verse 37, And Philip said, If thou believest with all thy heart, thou mayest. And let me tell you, there's some key elements in that phrase. He says, if thou. That word thou means personally. I tell you, a great concern I have for the average person that goes to church today. They're basing their eternity on grandma's salvation. They're basing their eternity on daddy's faith. Can I tell you, it's a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not a family gig. Now, thank God with your whole family saved. But can I tell you, don't base your eternity on whether or not your daddy was a preacher, your mama was a godly person, your grandma, grandpa, your wife, your husband, your children are. Can I tell you, your soul and eternity is way too important. He says, if thou, it's you personally. Can I ask you that question this morning? Have you personally accepted Christ as your Savior? Or did you just kind of ride the wave? Oh, I just think I'll join the church. Yeah, okay, yeah, I'm saved. I mean, surely I gotta be saved. Can I tell you, people that say I've been saved all my life have duped themselves more than you can be duped ever. Nobody's been saved all their life. We're all been born in sin. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And salvation comes at personal acceptance, personal of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I know I like to say it a lot. But over in uh, the book of Matthew, I believe, chapter number 7, Jesus says, many will say to me that day, Lord, Lord. That means they knew his name. Have we not? And eventually they'll go on about everything that they did for God. Don't at the end of here, depart from me. Why? Because I didn't know you personally. Just because you know who I am, don't believe that you asked me to save you. I'm not your savior. He says, if thou, it's personal. But he goes on to say, if thou believest. Now you say, what does that mean? Because Brother Phil, I've heard you say before that the demons believed in God and trembled that the demons aren't safe. Can I tell you what that word actually means? That word doesn't mean an acknowledgement. That means a trusting faith in. If you personally will put your faith in and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, there's going to be a lot of people that you're going to run into say, I believe in God. I believe in Jesus. But they're not trusting in him for salvation. They're not trusting in him for when they leave this earth 
to be absent from the body to be present with the Lord. He says, do you believe? If you personally have put your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, I think there's going to be a lot of really good people in hell. I hate to say that. There's going to be a lot of really, really good people in hell. You know why? Because they never reached the point of thou believest. It was a personal salvation. It wasn't just an acknowledgement. It was a personal trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, if thou believest, and the next part says, with all thine heart. Now, now let me try to explain this to you. It means completely and solely trusting in Jesus for your salvation. You say, well, Phil, what do you mean by that? You know, I've trusted Christ as my Savior. Can I tell you, I know a lot of people that are trusting in Jesus and works. Trusting in Jesus and baptism. They're trusting in Jesus and church membership. Trusting in Jesus and whatever. Can I tell you, your soul's eternity is way too valuable for you to be flirting with things like that. Can I tell you, the only reason that this guy you're looking at right here is going to be in heaven one day is because of the faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and him saving me. And it's by Christ and Christ alone, not by me even preaching one sermon up here. This is not going to guarantee me heaven. In fact, if I do this without Christ, it's just going to harden my soul more and more, and I'm just getting closer and closer to hell. I think there'll be preachers in hell. Even though they did a good thing. Because in the, the day, it ain't matter what I did. It's not by works. Not by works. It's by grace through faith. What are you trusting in today completely with all your heart to take you to heaven? Are you trusting in Christ and Christ alone? Well, I think I, I better keep doing what a Christian's supposed to do because, you know, if I don't go to church and I don't give and I don't tithe and I don't give back to that, I don't know. You know all the things that we do for God? We do them because we're, not go, because we're going to heaven, not to go to heaven. You know why I want to come to church? It's not that I'm scared I'm going to die and go to hell. It's because he saved me and I want to come here and I want to worship him corporately, corporately together with you. That's what I want to do. Why do I try to act the right way, say the right things, not say things that I want to say sometimes? Why? Not because I can go to heaven, but because I am going to heaven and I want to do this to please God with my life. And it's important for us to understand because we live in what we call the Bible Belt and people have drank the Kool-Aid. They have drunk the Kool-Aid. That you just, get, you just say a prayer, you go to church, and you're good. Every one of those sounded like a work. Trusting in Christ is not a work. It's resting in Him. It's putting your faith in Him. I've seen people that have been going to church over 20 years, taught Sunday school classes, led other people to Christ, come forward and say, I never truly got saved. I know who Jesus is. I can lead people to Christ. But I've never actually trusted Christ personally as my Savior. And can I tell you, they've told me over and over and over again, I would have done it so much sooner, and I knew it. But you know what? I was scared of what other people would think. You know what? I don't care enough of what you think for me to die and go to hell. You shouldn't either. In fact, anybody that doesn't rejoice with you, they got their own issues. You say, Phil, I've been going to this church a long time. Can I tell you one of the glorious days that we can celebrate with you as a brother and sister in Christ is the day you put your faith and trust in Christ. It may shock somebody, but you know it's a good shock. It's a good thing. Don't die and go to hell because everyone thinks you're a Christian. Because if there's going to be a day, it's only going to matter what God knows. 
There's going to be a day with that. But he says, if thou believest all thy heart, thou mayest. And I love the response. Verse 37. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. I don't believe that's the demons like faith acknowledging. I believe that's what I'm trusting in. I want to accept Christ. I want him as my Savior. I believe that's the profession that he puts in the salvation. And so we see this conversion here of this Ethiopian. So it goes on to verse number 38. It says, And he commanded the chariot to stand still, and they both went down into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. He wanted to be baptized. He says, So what do I do? He says, Well, after you trust Christ, what you do after you trust Christ, the first step of obedience is following the Lord in baptism. Can I tell you, baptism adds nothing to one's salvation. It is simply the outward way of showing of a new faith that's in someone's soul. But it is God's appointed way for us to confess God, confess Christ to men. You know why we won't get in that pool up there or wherever you get baptized at? Because that's a public demonstration of what's happened on the inside. You say, well, I don't know. Well, you're here and you're not. You're a Christian. You haven't been baptized. I just don't know about that. Don't worry about what other people think. You can't get baptized in front of other fellow believers. How are you going to live for Christ outside there or amongst unbelievers? Just, just ask him. Well, that's not, hey, it's all right. You don't get baptized with people. We'll, we'll meet sometime. We'll baptize on Tuesday. I don't care. But what baptism is, it's the command of God to say, hey, let's show publicly what he's done to me on the inside. And can I tell you, if you're on the fence there about baptism and you're just scared about it, can I tell you, it does nothing more for me, and I know many of you sitting here, than to see somebody, young or old, get in that pool up there and to be baptized and say, I have accepted Christ and I want to follow him to the best of my ability and through him helping me. It's an encouragement to put anybody in that water. But can I remind you of something greatly? It does not save you. There's nothing magical about that water. It's an illustration. It's when you're in the water... It's crucifixion, it's death when you're under the water, when you come up, the resurrection, and raised to life in newness of Christ. That's what it is. That's what's exciting to happen, to see that. So I encourage you, don't get baptized because you're scared I'm going to beat you upside the head about you don't get baptized. That's not the reason to get baptized. You follow the Lord of baptism because you want to publicly profess, and you don't have to say a word when you're up here. I want to do with my actions. Let people know I'm a child of God and I'm not perfect, but I want to try to go forward in my life for him. If that's what you want to do, that's what it is. Now, I won't take a moment here for this. I do believe baptism by immersion. That means you go underwater and you come up out of the water. You say, Phil, well, I kind of like the sprinkling thing. I like that a little bit better. Well, I don't know if you noticed this, but in verse number 39 it says, And when they were come up out of the water, I don't think they both came up out of a sprinkle. I'm not throwing rocks at people, and I'm not trying to make fun of people. But the reason you do immersion is because of the picture of the crucifixion, the burial, and the resurrection. That's why we have it. That's why we do it that way, by immersion. And we see here he was baptized. And, and we go on, it says in verse 39, And when they were come out, up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught away Philip, that the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. I tell you, it's awesome to see the joy and the peace that comes upon somebody that comes to know Christ as their Savior. You ever been around somebody that is a new Christian? I mean, they got some peace about them. I mean, even if they're an introvert of introverts, they seem to have a joy about them, a peace about them. To me, it's exciting. And it says here in this that he came up and what? He rejoiced. I don't think he rejoiced because he didn't see Philip anymore. He rejoiced because of what had happened in his life, what God had done in his life, accepting Christ. He was lost. 
and now he's found. And the eunuch went on his way rejoicing. And I wonder something, if that rejoicing helped him carry the gospel back to Ethiopia. He didn't have Philip there saying, no, when you go home, you need to read this, you need to read this, here's some tracks, you need to do this, 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 and this. He went away rejoicing because he had a joy that no human being or anything or circumstance could ever give him. He had what Jesus did in his life and that joy. I wonder if he went back and started spreading. And by the way, remember, we're in Acts. What does God want to do? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, uttermost parts of the earth. I wonder if this was the first step of sending the gospel to the uttermost parts of the earth. I wonder if this was his way. His ways are not our ways. His plans are not our plans. What if this was the way? There's no record. If you've seen this part, it says that he saw Philip no more. There's no record that he ever saw Philip again or Philip saw him. But I wonder when we get to heaven, how many people we're going to see there that trusted Christ because of the eunuch took the joy of the Lord back with him and told them about Christ. I wonder if we'll see Candace the Queen. Somebody we read about in Scripture, that'd be pretty cool. I wonder how many people came to faith in Christ because the eunuch allowed the joy of his salvation to help him take the word of God. You know what's awesome? The eunuch just became a disciple. We love Philip. I love Philip. But the eunuch just became a disciple that had the joy of the Lord and had a changed life. And I wonder what part of Ethiopia was changed because of the joy of the Lord. Let me ask you a question. Does the joy of your salvation change anything where you work at? Does the joy of your salvation change the way things are in your home? Does the joy of the Lord just change your overall personality and where you're at? Or has it got cold? Has it got kind of old hat? There's nothing like the joy and peace of a new believer. Man, to have that joy again. We can have it. We just have to put Christ first again. And it says here in verse 40, But Philip was found at Azotus. And passing through, he preached in all the cities till he came to Caesarea. Can I tell you something today? That Philip understood better what the Holy Spirit wanted in verse 40 than he did back in verse 26. Verse 26, I don't know if he really understood, but he obeyed. And I tell you, sometimes in our life we stay stuck in verse 26. Why do you want me to go to the desert? And we'll never get to experience the joy. I don't think it was just the eunuch that experienced the joy, by the way. I think Philip probably was charged up more than he ever was charged up as he went about telling more people about Christ. And can I tell you something? You say, is really one soul worth it? Ask the eunuch. Is one person coming to Christ worth leaving? Ask the eunuch. As it says, is the 90 and 9 worth leaving? It is when you're the one. It is when you're that one person that the shepherd goes to find. When the shepherd goes to seek. And you come to know Christ. May we take advantage of Philip of our divine appointments. I don't always get a memo when I'm supposed to share Christ with somebody. And you probably don't either. But may we take advantage of those divine appointments. If you're lost today, I invite you to come to a Savior. Not a tradition. If you're here without Jesus today, I invite you to come to a Savior that loves you, that gave himself for you. That wants to replace your lack of joy lack of happiness, lack of meaning in life with an ultimate peace that can only come through the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to replace a, relation, a religion with a relationship. 
a searching with a salvation that you might know that Jesus is the one that loves you and gave you and so he gave himself for you so you can come to heaven but if you're a believer today I want you to ask yourself the same question I've been asking me I've been asking myself excuse me do I know Christ more am I sensitive to the Holy Spirit's leading do I know more scripture so when I have these divine appointments I can't open my mouth and what comes out of my mouth is Jesus and not something else because there's somebody waiting for you let's stand together if you would Father I God I want to thank you right now for that somebody that came to me Lord there are many somebodies that had a part of drawing me to Christ And Father, help me to be that somebody for somebody else.